we wrote a score that was not certainly not 1920s music. And it really didn't uh, tip its head to 1920s music. But we were also pretty careful not to write like a contemporary rock score for it. We wrote music that uh, seemed to be a little bit displaced in time. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Everyone knows what a silent film that's a Victorian melodrama should sound like, but what should a silent film that's modern art sound like? I talked to Ken Winokur of the Alloy Orchestra, who can be heard on several upcoming video releases as well as on their fall tour starting in October. And one of Europe's biggest silent film festivals takes place every August in Bonn, under the stars. Nitrateville member Arndt Pavelsik tells us about this year's Internationale Stummfilmtage. Help keep up our Gemütlichkeit, subscribe at your favorite podcast site, and leave a rating or a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts so others discover us too. Thanks. If you think of European silent film festivals, you probably think first of Pordenone, famously for those minutely fascinated with the work of archives and deep historical excavation. But there are many different silent film festivals, some combining archival digging with a focus on popular audience building. That's how I describe the International Silent Film Festival, or Stummfilmtage, in Bonn, which takes place in August in the Arkadenhof, or open-air courtyard, of the University of Bonn. Arndt Pavelsik is a Nitrateville member from Germany who's been sharing his appraisal of the Stummfilmtage almost every year since 2008. I invited him this year to tell us more about it. Well, it's, it's kind of a strange festival because it's a mixture of people that come for the films and people that come purely because it's for free. Um, it's a Bonn institution. It's been going for 35 years now. So there's a lot of people who've just always gone to the festival. And they're not, you know, the rest of the year, they are not at all interested in classic film. They just go because it's a Bonn institution and it's free. And they meet all their friends there, I suppose. So that's, I would say that's probably half the people that come there. And then there's lots of students because Bonn is a big university town. Um, and they may or may not be interested in classic film. And then there's a sort of a, I don't know, 10 to 20% of people actually, you know, travel because this is Germany's biggest silent film festival. Well, you know, that's not a bad mix to have. I mean, it's, it seems like it's a kind of popular oriented festival that nevertheless gets some of the things that are happening among the archives, which sounds like a pretty mm. good combination to me. It's, it's because the guy that originated it, Stefan Rössler, who now is in charge of the Munich Film Museum, he's really got his finger on the pulse of what's going on. He's at Pordenona every year. Uh, the Munich uh, Film Museum restores films themselves and at quite a rate too. Um, so, and, and he discovers things in archives. So despite the fact that this is very popular, 
he is really quite cutting edge as far as silent film is concerned. So he brings um, new discoveries, new restorations, sometimes copies that you know you, nobody knew existed. It, it can be quite exciting that way. Yeah, and it also seems to be an interesting setup. I mean, it's outdoors in uh-huh. this. Uh, uh, I don't know what what do you call the uh, the architecture of that period in uh, in Germany. It's, it's sort of late Baroque. It's kind of Rococo um, or Rococo, I should say. It's the this is the Bishop's Palace. The bishops of Cologne, uh, for reasons that I'm not going to go into, lived in Bonn. And they built this um, in in the 18th century. They built several elaborate palaces in and around Bonn because the diocese of Cologne has always been unbelievably rich. So they made a lot of money from the, from the poor peasants there, and they invested that in these grand palaces, which are now part of the university. And the university allows the film festival to go ahead uh, every year in in its main quadrangle. And the, there's musical accompaniment uh, for everything. Yes. The oldest regular is Joachim Behrens, who's been coming to, you know, has been playing Bonn for uh, most of the 35 uh, years that he's been going. Um, And he still played this year, so he's still going strong. And then there's Günther Buchwald. He's also one of the the regulars who's been coming for a long, long time. And I suppose Stephen Horn has been coming for the best part of 10 years now. Uh, used, Neil Brandt used to come, but I've not seen him recently. And then there's people like uh, Richard Zitov, who started not that long ago and is now regular and plays almost half the festival. Um, there's amazing people that, uh, you know, like Elizabeth Jane Baldry, who played the harp this year, who's that was her first time. And I hope she'll be there every year from now because she was so wonderful. Martin Ellison has played. Um that we had a, a Russian pianist there for the first time this year. Um, Alyosha Zimmermann used to be, when he was still alive, he used to be the, the one of the major stars of German silent film accompaniment. He used to come, but now his daughter, Sabrina Zimmermann, comes. We we pretty much get, certainly all the German uh, accompanists of note come yeah. there, but, but quite a few international ones too. Are they on piano or a variety of instruments? You mentioned the harp. Well, Piano normally, but uh, it's quite often it's piano and percussion, um, piano and oboe, harp. We've had um, sort of small ensembles as well with all sorts of instruments. We've had a Japanese benshees. Um, <laughs> it's really quite varied in that respect. Well, it all sounds extremely pleasant if the weather's good uh, under the stars there in the in the Bishop's Palace. So that's right. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about some of the films. Um, I saw that uh, Forbidden Paradise, a new restoration that has not made it my way yet, uh, uh-huh. played there. What did you think of that? Um, is it, would it be sacrilege to say I was disappointed? Uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's just, I mean. It's everything you imagine it to be, but it's so, I mean, it's it's Lubitsch and Negri, but it's kind of pared down to the absolute minimum. You know, it's it's just, I think I wrote it as well. It's the, the whole film consists of raising of eyebrows, you know, <laughs> and that's that's all that's going on. Um, and it's it's kind of pleasant, but it, it lacks spunk. It, you know, the, the German uh, collaborations of Lubitsch and Negri were, sort of had, had a lot more fire and this is just too sophisticated i mean there's there's really not that much happening i mean you really i mean i always enjoy watching Paul negri and 
the film is certainly enjoyable in many respects, but I'd I'd expected a bit more. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you liked Peter Pan a lot. I don't know. Was that the first time you had seen it? No, no. I know the film quite well, but it I, it's it is such a wonderful film um, for so many reasons. And then having the Harper compliment just just made it all the more special. That that really was a fantastic night. Yeah, that that fits well. Uh, Tinkerbell getting a little glissando on the harp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you talked about uh, I thought this was this was really interesting a m- movie called uh, we'll try my high school German here Gefahren der Großstadtstraße yes. Dangers yes. of City Streets That's uh, right. which is basically the 1924 equivalent of you know we have news channels here that d- when the ratings are being collected we'll do are prostitutes lurking on your street <laughs> you know this sounds well, like kind exactly of- it Yes, it's it's a precursor to these programs. Basically, it's it's sort of you know a guilty pleasure. You you they they purport to warn you of things while you you just get to watch gleefully how other people get robbed and and go with prostitutes and fall under cars and things like that. It's yeah. it's sort of a, kind of a, a, an early version of an internet fail blog or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was well done though. It was it was quite um, it wasn't cheaply produced by any means and what I enjoyed most was that you actually got to see Munich before the war and and I had a feeling it was fairly authentic it wasn't not much was staged it was actually filmed in the streets it's not you know it'll it'll, it's a curiosity it's it's not a a film that you just desperately need to seek out right (laughs) (laughs) um now you said that the the most exciting thing that you saw uh a title that i've never heard of i've never heard of the directors of it a russian film which is a a good place to find things that are amazing that no one's heard of absolutely uh, called uh kane e artem kane and artem from 1929 it's obviously a play on kane and abel um you have this well it's a maxim gorky short story just like mother just like the Pudovkin film and it's kind of as dark as in, it's very pessimistic about humankind in general. So you have this this really um, vivid but but very very negative de- depiction of a of a market in rural Russia where you know just everybody is nasty and dirty and a crook and and doesn't respect their fellow man. And then you have this one good guy who's the only Jew in town, uh, kind who gets bullied by everybody. And especially by this 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 huge Volga boatman who uh, Art Artem who you know who is beloved by all the women on in the market, and it's only when he uh, barely survives an assassination attempt by the husband of a of a woman he's you know um, he's flirting with, then he gets saved by by the the Jew, and then obviously because this is a Soviet film. Um, the, he, the, you know, kind teaches Artem about socialism, and then turns him around and makes him a good person through <laughs> the the writings of. Um, it's quite an old film, so it, it would be Marx, I suppose, not Lenin yeah. yet. Yeah. So um, that doesn't sound that promising offhand. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it worked for you. It's all style. It's a film that really is unbelievably stylish. It's an absolute masterpiece in that respect. Now, if you enjoy. The, uh, if you enjoy Pudovkin and Eisenstein, here you have somebody who's digested, you know, all of these Russian ma- masters, and come up with something that 
kind of brings it all together, has some great ideas, incredible uh, depth of field in the um, in the individual takes. We were, I mean, I, I was sitting there with several other people who had all seen a lot of silent films. And at the end, of, we just looked at each other and said, wow, you know, what have we just seen? This is unbelievable that we've never heard of this film because it's as good as any, any other film we've seen from Russia. Um, so it really needs to get, get out a bit more, I think. Was there, do you know anything about the backstory on uh, where it came from? I mean, I looked up the director, who is Pavel Pot- Petrov Bilov, yeah. and he seems to have one other film from 1934 known as Miracles in English that has a little renown, although nobody seems to have seen it either because there aren't any reviews on the IMDb. No. I mean, the, the, on, the reason why it was uh, playing Bonn is there's a cultural initiative at the moment that's trying to bring... Russian uh, culture to Germany. So th- we could get the film for the festival together with the accompanist. So there was a, a, a Russian pianist that accompanied it and they came as kind of a package. And I think that's why it was playing one because it was, uh, it's part of this sort of uh, cultural um, outreach from Russia at the moment. But I, I've not heard about the director. I've not, I didn't recognize anybody in the film. It, it genuinely, I've, I've not, looked into the background uh, to tell you the truth but it, I, I have nothing to say about yeah. that other yeah, than it's, no. it's really worth, well worth uh, seeking out the film and watching it uh, I, I didn't go every night because um, I'd seen the films and uh, you know I'm, it, it, it does wear you down uh, sit, because you, in order to get a good seat you really have to be there I don't know, six, seven o'clock, and then you sit there till midnight, and it's unbelievably uncomfortable. The seats are, in order to cram as many people as possible in, they have these folding chairs that, you know, that would be too small for for kindergarten use. Um, And you get to know your neighbors really well. Um, Weiser Hölle Pitz Palu played, you know, the uh, collaboration of Arnold Fang and uh, G.W. Pabst, which is a film I love, but I've just seen it too often. So I, I. I'm afraid I didn't go. The uh, I really like the Chinese one. Um, let's just see the German. The German name is is Kampf ums Glück, but there's a Fendu. It was called um, the striving. You the said striving. The yeah. Well, I, that's a review. That's a review from uh, the Hippodrome Silent Film Festival from Scotland that gives it that name, and it. You know, I've seen quite a few uh, Chinese silence in recent years, and they all. I loved a lot of them, but they all seemed very much straight copies of Hollywood films. And this one was more Chinese, and I really like that. That's what I like about Japanese silence. I like it when they feel, when you actually learn something and you understand something about Japan. And this one had this uh, character who was the, the old guy who lived in the same house as the protagonists. And he uh, he was sort of the Confucian wisdom in the film. He he took the the young girl away to his home village where his where his clan lived, and then when the when the villain um, attacked, the whole clan ganged up together and and defeated him. And he brought then brought the lovers together. So I thought that to me that felt like it was a, a peculiarly Chinese thing that you you know the old guy knows best and and always listen to your elders and so on and so forth yeah apart from that it was a very pleasant film to watch it was nothing um that it was no great discovery Uh, i'll say okay i didn't i didn't go and see prestanka and the you know the the parson's widow the dryer film right 
because I'm I'd seen it too often. <laughs> okay, and then maybe you're just gonna say that you saw the name Carl Dreyer and stayed away as a result. But no, I love Dreyer. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know he's uh, you know he, he divides the community, but I I, I am a great sucker for uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc and for the word and everything. I love these films, but the early ones aren't in the same uh, category. And the Parsons Widow is is one I'd seen a few times, and that was enough. I mean, I went to see uh, the Beloved Rogue um, because Richard Zitov was playing, and that that is a, a a film I could see you know, every other week. It's just so entertaining. Right, and and I'm sure great to look at on the big screen. Uh, yeah, assuming absolutely. they had a nice print. So. Uh, the print was a bit dark, um, but it was good that I'd seen the film before. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> I might have missed some of the finer details. Okay. It was this uh, Richard Zito accompanied together with uh, Mikita Zirov, who's a who's an oboist, and they played really well together. And that was a, that was an absolutely lovely accompaniment. So it was worth going just for that. The last one then was was this. I mean, I'm in two minds about this. For years now, the last film of the festival, it's on a Sunday night. So, you know, I mean, it was it's, it was still pretty full. I mean, there were more than a thousand people there. But it's a Sunday night, so they don't put out the blockbuster on the last night. They put out, you know, an obscure film, a curiosity, um, some sort of comedy. And I always think you should end on a high. I'm I'm not happy with them ending on these films where I think, you know, was that really necessary? For years, they... Uh, they show on the last night they showed sound film, but they shot silent versions of sound films. So, um, like you know, uh, Monte Carlo or something. Right. But, oh my. Which is not a silent film. It's a it's a sound film with the the soundtrack amputated. Right. And <laughs> yeah, that can, that can be a drag for sure. Absolutely. This time it was a, the Swedish thing with a perfect twenties title. His Majesty is cutting bobs. Yeah. <laughs> You you just see it right there. Well, exactly. That that says all you need to know about the film, and you don't really need to go and see the film, because you know you already know what is what is going to be about. At least, I mean, this is the second um, film by that director that that they showed in recent years. And Ragnar it, Hilton Cavalius. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Beautifully pronounced. Uh, I couldn't have done it any better. And they had, a, had another one, which was a, um, a Swedish-German-Hungarian uh, co-production, believe it or not, which, which was actually better than this one. This one was, was, you know, well done. But I suppose that's the spirit of Bonn, that um, you, you really always get a mixed bag. They, they don't have a theme. You always have, over the, the course of 11 nights, you have a completely mixed bag of films. And uh, it's amazing that a film, an obscure film like this, will draw more than a thousand people on a Sunday night, you know. But they were there. I, 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 I witnessed them there. <laughs> Links for the Bond Festival's program and Arndt Pavelsik's write-ups on what he saw are in the show post at nitrateville.com. So this is where I'd normally tell you to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts to help other people find out about us. 
But you know, I also do that because you need a little break between one segment and the next. Take it down a little before we get excited again. And I don't have the usual natural breaks of radio. Station IDs or reading the weather or announcements about the pancake breakfast at the local VFW hall or whatever. So, we'll just chill for a minute. Not that you couldn't take this time and leave us a rating or a review. I mean, I'd, I'd appreciate that. But, you know, we're cool either way. Okay, that should about do it. Now, let's get sinister. A gangster scurries across the street, his eye and gun on the jewels in a window. This is the Chicago of 1927's underworld, and the jauntily amoral urban atmosphere is created not only by Joseph von Sternberg's visuals, but by the music of the Alloy Orchestra, who play for it on Criterion's editions of the film. Founded in 1991 and based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Alloy Orchestra takes a different approach than many silent film music ensembles, accompanying avant-garde-tinged films with playfully modernist scores. Some viewers, including at Nitrateville, object to their non-traditional music as the only choice on a video release. The leader Ken Winokur says audiences respond overwhelmingly favorably to them in live performance. You'll have chances to hear them both ways in the coming months. Their scores will be on Criterion's Blu-ray release of the Von Sternberg Silence and Kino Lorber's edition of The Eagle with Rudolph Valentino, among others while their fall tour will begin in mid-October and take them around the Midwest and East Coast. I began our conversation by asking Ken Winokur how he got started accompanying silent films. I have played music all my life, percussion since fifth grade, uh, but actually studied uh, literature and journalism in college and worked as a journalist and commercial photographer for many years after college. Uh, always been interested in films, but really just as a another art form that attracted me, never professionally. Although I, I made films in high school, I worked on video crews, and I've done sort of everything involved in media production. I did. I was kind of a specialist in slideshows for a while. I did a syndicated cartoon that was in a dozen or more papers around the country that was a single black and white photograph with a dialogue printed underneath it. It was very silent movie-ish. So I flirted with kind of all aspects of uh, media production and, you know, various art forms um, until uh, Metropolis came and grabbed me. <laughs> when 1991, uh, uh, my partner Caleb Sampson and I had been doing every type of multimedia event. We were doing outdoor performances for first night with homemade uh, giant junk metal drum sets we were working on you know uh, theatrical performances dance performances all you name it um and a lot of uh, videos for sesame street uh, mtv vh1 doing audio for those 
And a local film programmer who uh, knew both Caleb and myself uh, called and asked kind of offhand if we would be interested in uh, accompanying Metropolis. So this is five or six years after the restored Metropolis had come out with the Giorgio Moroder soundtrack, which most of you probably know in this group, but uh, has a sort of a disco rock score by Giorgio Moroder, uh, including um, Freddie Mercury singing Love Hurts as Maria the Robot is being burnt at the stake. Lots of, you know, funny, interesting camp uh, pieces, but most mm, silent film people felt it was uh, an odd style of music to accompany this film. So anyway, he didn't want to show that music along with the film, which he had already programmed, so he asked us to come up with a new score for it. We just had a few weeks. I immediately called uh, my friend Terry Donahue, who I'd been playing with in a highly percussive rock band called Concussion Ensemble. And so the three of us, Caleb, Terry, and myself, uh, spent a few weeks writing simple themes, essentially uh, music that could be improvised on, and then plugging it into all the different scenes of the film. So rather than coming at it as many musicians do, where we simply just improvise straight through, we felt we really ought to write a score, but didn't have time to write a, a detailed score. So we wrote a very simple outline of a score that left a lot of room for improvisation. So fast forward to the end of this period, uh, we had a weekend's worth of shows booked, uh, the first show uh, had a good audience. I don't know, 100 plus people. This is at the Coolidge Corner Cinema in Boston, one of the beautiful kind of neighborhood movie houses, Art Deco style, so very appropriate. And uh, the next day there was twice as many people, and the next day more, and finally the last day we sold out the house. So we realized very quickly that this was an unusually powerful a medium having the live music along with the gorgeous 35 millimeter image and uh, immediately decided to do more shows of Metropolis and also to start looking for other films that we could score. Yeah, now the interesting thing is that you're not doing kind of the historical score, um, you know, which which is more typical of people at least trying to work in the idiom. Some like Rodney Sauer very much devoted to finding music from the period and putting together a score the way someone would have back then. And you seem to to largely pick things that have kind of an avant-garde component or in some way it's it's they're basically you know modern art of the of the time period i mean very much tied in to the kind of movements that were going on in other arts well you did a, it's a very good description i mean our our beginning with metropolis in 1991 i'm not sure whether the uh, gottfried hoopert score was even known it certainly wasn't known to me it wasn't available on any you know, in those days, VHS tapes, or in any way one could you know, really access it. And uh, we didn't have a lot of time, and we didn't even really think about it, because our jobs had been for years to write new music to go with whatever media production somebody presents to us. So we set off on this thing very naively. We didn't uh, decide we were going to try to, you know, break new ground or, uh, you know, uh, piss off traditionalists <laughs> in the group. Uh, and we just did what felt natural to us, as we had done for many contemporary films. And 
we wrote a score uh, that was not certainly not 1920s music. And it really didn't uh, tip its head to 1920s music. But we were also pretty careful not to write like a contemporary rock score for it. We wrote music that uh, seemed to be a little bit displaced in time. Uh, it didn't call attention to its modernity, but it also didn't shout, you know, this is traditional music from the 1920s. Uh, and we never really revisited this decision. From the very beginning, the response from the audiences were great. They really enjoyed it. Most audiences don't even have a second thought about whether or not the music is uh, traditional or appropriate for the time period. They go into the theater expecting entertainment, and if you've done that, they're happy about it. Uh, you know, then we start doing more and more films. And at that period of time, when there was nowhere near the scholarship on silent films, there was very few films available. What there was was literally in VHS. Uh, Carl Davis dominated those. Our next film was The Wind with William Gish, which the VHS came with a Carl Davis score. So obviously you're not going to copy another uh, artist's listen to it because it was really good but you know we put it aside and then wrote our own music for that one yeah your, your instrumentation is kind of uh quirky in that it uh you bill it as including a uh was it the the rack of junk uh well so long before i started playing with silent films and with ally orchestra as a percussionist and i'd been doing everything from drum set to uh, latin percussion or african percussion i joined a kind of a rock funk band and i didn't really have a real set of equipment and i came on as the percussionist rather than the actual drummer so i essentially built drums that you see today more or less uh with a large overhead rack the top of a 50 gallon uh i think soap container that you know sounded like a gong i had plumbing pipes i had horseshoes I made uh, equipment, I made drums out of uh, cans, I made xylophones out of two-by-fours, and so that was my thing, was the kind of homemade found object in junk metal instruments. So when Metropolis was presented to us, you know, when you look at the set in Metropolis, you know, with the steel things crashing down upon the city and, you know, the whole art deco design and the whole industrialization of the society, it looks like my drum set. So, you know... <laughs> Metropolis seemed a no-brainer. Okay, you know, we totally fit with this. And that's also why we brought – so there was three of us in the band originally, as I mentioned, Caleb Sampson, the keyboard player, Terry Donahue, percussionist, and myself. So with Metropolis being such a powerful and over-the-top movie with so many fight scenes and the catastrophe of the city, the two-percussionist thing worked like a charm. It was really the perfect instrumentation for this. Uh, virtually no other film we've ever done has that instrumentation made so much sense. And to the point where we do sort of avoid the uh, quiet, subtle films, the parlor dramas. Uh, I always joke about silent Shakespeare, which is sort of a conundrum. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get to hear anything here, but, you know, this is the movie and the play itself. Uh, so we do gravitate toward films with um, – more action. We love fights and storms and murders and revolutions. It's definitely a big hit for us. Uh, and just also anything that asks for us to be, well, as you mentioned, we do play within a lot of the avant-garde films from the period. Uh, Man with a Movie Camera. Uh, one of our favorites is a film called From Morning Till Midnight, a German expressionist film that came out like weeks after Nosferatu. Uh, those things seem to to fit both our instrumentation, but also our 
attitude about life. You know, we pick the darker movies. We're less inclined to do the sweet, wholesome movies with a happy ending. Uh, and that tends to direct us a lot toward European, Russian movies. You know, I listen to everybody's soundtracks. I love to hear other types of soundtracks. I've been a huge boozer of Montalto and Rodney Sauer, Donald Sosin. Uh, you know, I love Carl Davis's work. You know, so it's not like everything has to sound like Alloy to me, but this is how we sound this is what we play. And if you actually would go back into the minds of, of our previous work from our uh, performance art and rock bands and stuff, you know, it, it had a similar kind of quality to it that we've kind of brought into the silent era. But at the same time, I got to say, we are really careful not to completely take you out of that space. When you go to a movie, a silent movie or any movie, you kind of submerge yourself into this ocean of experience. And the movie is is directing that. So we are always trying to uh, amplify or interpret the movie, the attitude that the director had. You know, if it's a love scene, we play beautiful romantic music. If it's a fight scene, we'll play active, very percussion-based stuff. If it's a German expressionist film, we'll plumb the depths of the uh, disharmonious chords that the keyboard player is capable of doing, lots of scraping metal and things that make you feel uncomfortable. So we're not just trying to apply our music to any old film. We're trying to take our music and find the films that it complements. And then scene by scene, we're always asking ourselves, you know, what is the scene trying to do? What are we going to do to try to amplify that? You know, Metropolis, to me, when we first started, it became almost uh, the template for how we're going to do these things. Metropolis is filled with lots of percussion scenes and junk metal and excitement. But it's also it's a love story of what we call Maria's theme. Uh, when the good Maria, the real flesh and blood Maria, is on screen, we use this theme. And I think it's one of our most successful themes. And it's very pretty, and it's uh, just the orchestral sounds out of the synthesizer, oboe and such, uh, doing a really pretty romantic theme. And then I sent you a second piece of music, uh, which we call Escape from Underground, which is when the city is falling apart and all the people who are living underground, the workers, are escaping. And it's a big, you know, catastrophic scene. Uh, we do a real drum-heavy uh, scene. And then that kind of defined the two kind of styles that we weave together in almost all of our films, you know, that we try to keep their being some sort of upbeat and percussion type stuff, but we try not to forget that people love melodies and melodies are appropriate for certain types of, you know, scenes. And so, like I said, that follows us through all of our films. But I can say to also make a difference when you see these things live. Now you're a silent film, you know, fanatic, and you know this. There's something about the live performance with that amazing projection. I used to say glorious 35 millimeter, but now it can be a glorious digital projection. Right. That the combined uh, experience of being in a theater with other people, you've gone out, you know, you're in a good mood, is is strangely powerful. Because you know we're going to be a lot louder in real life, and you're going to listen to it on your television. <laughs> we're going to be you're going to be engulfed by this music, and like a good rock show, you know, it's going to work on you. Or a good jazz jazz show, or a good orchestral performance. Uh, that volume actually has a strange way of kind of triggering people's emotions. And, now, I know you recorded your Metropolis score for the Blu-ray, uh, but it actually ended up not 
coming out on that release. And you were actually selling it online for people who wanted the alternate track. So the way that came about, if you want to know the story, is that uh, Don Kramer contacted me. And, you know, we've been in touch on a lot of things. And we're in terms. And he said, you know, we're going to put out Metropolis, and I'd really like to use Alloy Score as a second track. And I said, great. You know, we've been looking forward to this for a decade or two at this point. And we were very excited about it. Uh, he, we signed a contract and all, all that. We actually recorded all of the music. I submitted it to him. He synced it up with the film, sent me a test. It was all great. And then oddly late at night one night, he called me up and said, Ken, I got to tell you that we can't do it. The uh, copyright owner, which is Murnau Stiff Tongue, uh, does not want to put up a competing score to the score that they have just invested a fortune in getting a 65-piece orchestra, You know, hiring really good people to rearrange the music. And edit it back to fit this new print. So they just don't want to create their own competition, and they're not going to let us put the score out. So we were, we had the score in the can already, and uh, you know, Metropolis is the film that more people had seen. We've done more shows with than practically everything else combined, and so we thought it would be interesting for those very intrepid few to offer our score, uh, so that they could, with if they have you know, a computer and a DVD player, or right. you know, they want to actually try to go into a, a video editing program catch our score our, our score will run simultaneously with the film in sync perfectly and I, I know that there's several people who have done that so couple of different uh, releases that are coming out right now uh, or in the near future that you're on, although I get the sense that the, many of them are scores that you did a long time ago. Uh, but let's go through some of those because that's the easiest way, obviously, for people all across the country to get a, an example of what you're doing. We'll talk about your upcoming tour in a minute. But uh, the first one is The Eagle with Rudolph Valentino. And I have to admit, this is one of those things that it seems like I should have seen long ago and I've just never managed to be in the same room as it was. Uh, and I didn't have the laser disc, which I think is the last time it really came out. So tell me about uh, The Eagle and how you scored that. Well, The Eagles is a longer story because that is one of the films I actually purchased the original film elements uh, when the Killian Collection was disintegrating. Uh, David Shepard, who I suppose everybody in this crowd knows well, and I collaborated to purchase films from them. David got a lot of great films, uh, Punchback of Notre Dame, I think he got Parts of Intolerance. Anyway, he got a lot of great stuff, and um, I got the entire Valentino collection of the Killian collection that included their best negatives of son of the Sheik, uh, blood and sand, the Eagle, and then a lot of 16 millimeters of other things. And these even included, uh, the soundtracks by Lee Irwin or, or Bill Perry or whomever. Uh, so the first film I decided to, uh, work with, and it required a restoration project was the Eagle. So this is 2000 and, six approximately so this is before we were really doing restorations uh digitally so i made a 35 millimeter print i hired uh, cinema arts um janice allen in pennsylvania who's you know world renowned for the quality of his work uh to do a print he used a special technique on our 35 millimeter print which he called a low uh, a high silver content print uh he basically used copy negative film uh 
processed it so we ended up being a positive, uh, brought the contrast down a little bit, which had been a problem with this negative, but also gave a, a kind of a glowy, super detailed look, supposedly trying to imitate nitrate. Uh, now, that film ran only at 18 frames per second, or we would only play it at 18 frames per second. And uh, so that severely limited the amount of places we could play it. So we didn't get as much use out of the Eagle as we had always hoped. Uh, the day before our premiere, our premiere was at Lincoln Center, the Film Society of Lincoln Center, Walter Reed Theater in New York. Uh, we did a dress rehearsal, and I recorded that dress rehearsal just as a reference, also if I needed to, you know, just demo material for people, uh, but hadn't really used it. Okay, so fast forward 10 or 12 years, I'd actually talked to Kino a few times about putting out the Eagle. They were ready to do uh, uh, various other Valentino films. They had done My Son of the Sheik and The Sheik recently for David Shepard. And so they called, Brett Wood called me and asked me if I would uh, be interested in having them put out the Eagle. I said yes, assuming we were going to have to re-record the soundtrack because we haven't played it now for close to 10 years and that, you don't remember things that well. So it was going to require a good deal of rehearsal. And I went back to listen to the previous recording just to you know get some ideas of what we were doing. And I realized it was extremely well played. I mean, when we do a premiere at Film Society Lincoln Center, we rehearsed our asses off. You know, we <laughs> were really prepared. So, you know, we did a in one pass, there's no stopping or starting, there's no overdubbing, none of that stuff. And I listened to it and I said, well, we're never going to have a performance better than this. Um, and even though it's very modestly recorded with only two microphones and a mono track from the synthesizer, you know, they were two very good Neumann microphones and it sounds pretty good. Um, and uh, we're really kind of happy that it came out with that almost uh, archival recording. Another one that's coming out is uh, Criterion is uh, reissuing its von Sternberg silence set with uh, a, a Blu-ray this time. Uh, and I assume this is the same score that was on the DVD version for which you played for, uh, what, both Underworld and The Last Command? Yes, it is. And in fact, they didn't even tell us that they were reissuing it. And uh, yeah. certainly didn't have permission. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, they own it. You know, we owe right. them the rights to it. They have every right to do it. But uh, maybe they just let us know, but they didn't. So tell me about that one. I had gotten into a conversation uh, with... Um, Barry Dove of MGM. The Telluride Film Festival asked us to score The Last Command for, you know, presentation at the festival, gave me Barry Dove's contact information. I called him, had a surprisingly wonderful conversation with him. I'm afraid of the studios. The studios <laughs> have not been, they've not been responsive to independent people suggesting they do stuff with you know, their films. And so I was a little reluctant. They were going to give me a hard time or they were going to make it difficult or too expensive to rent. Uh, and he just took the opposite tack. He was excited by the project. Uh, when he realized how many shows potentially there could be, he says, well, we're going to have to make you a brand new print. <laughs> and I go, wow. I thought it was our, you know, like 10th conversation where I was going to bring that one up, you know? Uh, and they did, they made a gorgeous print of the last command, uh, we did our score for it. We performed it at Telluride. But in that first conversation, he said, oh, you know, you should also know we have some other materials, particularly von Sternberg's Underworld. Now, Underworld had been written up by James Card and Kevin Brownlow as being one of the great, great films, you know, of the silent era. But it had been almost completely unavailable. I had never seen it. And so when he told me that Underworld could be available, I got it 
really excited. I was jumping up and down in my room. And I said, well, we definitely got to revisit this. Uh, and and we did. Um, I wasn't able to get Telluride to do that one. So I believe that one was also premiered at Film Society of Lincoln Center. I'm not certain of that. I may be, may be crediting the wrong person with that. You know, we've done over a thousand shows and the details of some of the shows sure. tend to get a little funny. Uh, anyway, so we wrote a score for Underworld, which we really, really felt very strongly about. Uh, the Last Command is great. Emily Hunnings is wonderful. The score is really fit the movie. But Underworld is a film kind of after our own hearts. You know, it's a film about the hard-boiled Chicago gangsters who, you know, literally are not as hard-boiled as they seem. They actually have personalities and they care for other people. And uh, it, it's not really credited as being the first film noir, but in my mind, that's what it is. It is so much like gangster films that followed and film noir that followed those uh but it's astoundingly influential in the two different genres von sternberg to me is the director with the most exquisite visual eye and start to finish in both of those movies and even more in the docks of new york you know the the look on the film is just glowing and glorious and just exciting just to be in the theater to watch it really well preserved and really well restored so the quality of the uh 35 millimeter prints we work with, then the I've only seen the DVD, I haven't seen the new Blu-rays. And then uh the other thing you mentioned, and this uh, we'll, we'll get into the tour about this as well. This is a film I didn't know at all, and that's Gallery of Monsters, which right there, I mean, who can turn down that title? So I did not have a new film for this year. We do a new film every year or two, uh, but at least one. Uh, I didn't have any of the major players, the Telluride Festival or the New York Film Festival, uh, demanding anything from us. And so I had to find one on my own this time. And this happens periodically, and I start beating the bushes of all the different uh, – Film distributors who's got something new and exciting. Uh, first up, typically, you know, used to be David Shepard and now is Serge Bromberg. And Serge had been kind of talking about this film, Gallery of Monsters, just kind of vaguely for a little while. And he said, you know, you should look at this one. This one, I think, has Alloy written all over it. <laughs> so, well, the, first of all, that I think titles sell the film better than anything else. Gallery of Monsters, people are going to come to see it. It's an exciting film. It's not about monsters. There's no monsters in this film. It's a circus picture. The monsters reference, there's actually a title that specifically says this. So the circus is filled with the sideshow characters, the, uh, the giant, uh, the little person, the bearded lady, the woman with no torso, you know, bottom half of her body, uh, kind of a rubber person, all the kind of typical circus sideshow characters. And the title says specifically the monsters – are not these people, they are the owner of the circus and the lion tamer, who are terrible characters who are continually trying to rape the pretty uh, dancer who's the heroine of the story. So that is who the monsters are. So it is, in a sense, like the movie Freaks, which most people probably are somewhat aware of, where the so-called freaks are the heroes of the story. They're treated very sympathetically. Uh, they're real people. Gallery of Monsters, there's a society that lives together at the circus. They take care of each other, and there's some conflicts. The uh, American dancer Flossie is always trying to seduce the uh, handsome pantomime artist hero, Riquette. 
But, you know, they are a family and they take care of each other in, in disasters and, you know, protecting them, each other from the dastardly uh, circus owner. Um, and so it's a strangely um, sensitive and sweet film about this society. But it's also filled with all sorts of exciting action, uh, especially lions. There's lions all the way through this film, and there's a lion attacking the dancer, Valda. Uh, the film is completely unknown as far as I know. I mean, it, it has never been issued by anyone. Uh, Serge Bromberg apparently had never even known of it. It came from the estate of Marcel Lherbier, French director who did a previous film we'd worked with called L'Inhumain and a variety of other films. Uh, but he was not the director, he was the producer. The star of the film, whose name is uh, Jacques Catelin, uh, is both the writer, director, and star of the film. Uh, he, if you have seen L'Inhumain, is the hero of that film. Right. He directed this, and I, I don't know why it has been so lost. I think that he didn't have a name recognition. Um, well, for whatever reason, it ended up in the uh, Lerbier archive. The archive went from Lerbier family to Serge Bromberg's, uh, you know, custody, and he's releasing various films from that. Largent. Uh, so that's where it came from. He showed it to me. I actually was in France last year, and I had uh, made an appointment to uh, just meet him, hang out, drink a glass of wine with him, and uh, he had sent me the film, which I hadn't had a chance to watch yet. So the night before I was going to meet him, the first night I'd arrived in Paris, I'm up on the floor, walk up uh, Paris, Garrett, in the Marais district, and I'd bought a bottle of wine and a sandwich, and I sat down to watch the film, and it blew me away. I wasn't expecting it to be an engrossing, encompassing, and in a sense, sort of modern film, but it, it is. It's really well edited. The story is complex and satisfying. The characters are broad and interesting. Um, the cinematography is amazing. And so I sat there up in my Paris Garrett having, you know, the, one of those great film experiences you'd get occasionally. So. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had to watch it again. Was it only Paris with a bottle of wine? No, it's really that good a film. So. <laughs> I always am second guessing. I'm a subjective approach to these things. I'm in a good mood, you know, and a friend of mine makes a piece of art. I love it. You've got to step back, look at your biases and say, well, what is it about this film that's making it work for me? And in this case, you know, I say it's the film itself. So tell me about uh, Marcel Lerbier. I mean, he's one of those filmmakers who is always just kind of a name and we're just now starting to see his films flicker alley has released two of his films now uh lynn human and l'argent you scored the first one so tell me about uh and lynn human when i first saw gallery of monsters i actually thought it had been directed by l'herbier and when i saw surge i said wow he's really uh very hot and cold some of his stuff is like kind of brilliantly directed and organized and written and some of it's a little looser Unless, you know, perfect. And so in, in that respect, I'm thinking of Lin Humen. Um, Lin Humen is both one of the most innovative, exciting, and brilliant visual experiences you'll ever see. But it is also kind of a failed film in my respect. <laughs> uh, the uh, lead actress, whose name I can't recall, uh, signed on to this project early and actually ended up funding the project, which is how she got the role as a lead. She's supposed to be an irresistible opera singer who every man in the world is in love with. Uh, but in reality, she's a somewhat unattractive and they've never figured out how to make her feel. She seems very imperious and distant and cold and you don't really like her. So yeah. why are all these 
is falling all over themselves for it. I don't know. So Lindemann was a, a project of the entire avant-garde of Paris. Uh, everyone from Fernand Leger, who did sets, to um, Lalique, who's famous for his glasswork, who did objects, uh, Maillard Stevens, who's a really famous Art Deco architect, did uh, the exterior sets. Uh, the music uh, was done by uh, Darius Mio. So all these people came together to make this film. And in shooting, there's a scene in an auditorium where they're playing music and the uh, theater goers are upset about what's going on on stage. He hired the most controversial, in real life, hired the most controversial composer in France, whose name was Georges Antile, uh, to come in and do a concert. He invited all of the high-end art community of Paris, which included uh, Picasso and oh, I can't remember the list. Uh, it's this astounding collection of people who are in the audience because this music was so audacious, a sort of near riot ensues, not choreographed, but actual. And he filmed it and that's in the movie. It was kind of a brilliant uh, staging concept. Right. So anyway, it, the film is really interesting. It's got astounding cinematography and it all culminates. Uh, so the guy who's the Jacques Padlin figure in the movie is an inventor and a scientist. And eventually you get into his laboratory. Uh, the laboratory is this astoundingly gorgeous article fantasy of what a laboratory would be. He essentially invents television and reverse television where the person <laughs> on television can actually look out into the audience and watch his audience all over the world. There's an African woman looking at it. and uh, So that's really interesting. And then at the end, they resuscitate uh, the, the heroine uh, who's been bitten by a snake with what is basically a defibrillator. They juice her up with electricity and she comes back to life. So there's astounding you know, inventiveness in this film. And then the, the last scene is this highly, so we're able to have this theory of colors where uh, colors presented emotions and stuff. So there's this wild uh, colorization of the film, single colors, tints rather than hand coloring, but flashing bright colors throughout it. The whole thing gains speed and it's rapidly cut and it's really amazing ending where alloy gets the opportunity of really letting loose with our percussive barrage, which is typically kept, you know, at bay through almost all of the films we play in. So, so back to Gallery of Monsters. You're premiering it in Bloomington, Indiana on October 18th, and then it's going other places around the Midwest, like Detroit and Cleveland. You're really kind of testing it on the heartland here. Uh, so how'd that come about? We do a Midwestern tour every fall in the, you know, right around that time. Uh, the Midwestern cities are nicely grouped, so you can drive between one and the other in three or four hours mostly. And it makes for a really effective and cost-effective uh, tour. And so this was the time for our Midwestern tour. And so they often get our uh, first kind of generation of, uh, of shows. Bloomington, University of Indiana actually commissioned Alloy to do the score for Gallery of Monsters. Oh, We've been okay. at this gig for 30 years. No one has ever commissioned us. Not Telluride, not New York Film Festival, they designate a film for us. You know, we have had to earn our living by doing live performances. Well, the University of Indiana actually has an attitude that they want to support artists and musicians, and they actually commissioned us to write the score. That's why they're getting the premiere, um, and we're incredibly appreciative of John Vickers and the university. So, plus, I'm a Midwestern boy. I'm from St. Louis, so oh, okay. I try not to. I try to get over that flyover uh, yeah. mentality that so many in my city of 
than in New York have. You know, <laughs> these people love their silent films as much as anyone else. Also, do films that you know Alloy wouldn't be the first thing you might think of, and I chose The Eagle. Now, The Eagle takes place in, I suppose, 19th century Russia. Uh, Rudolf Valentino's figure is a, uh, a minor uh, military uh, figure. Uh, he captures the interest of the Queen of Russia, I guess Catherine at that point, but I'm not really sure. And uh, you know, it does not demand an avant-garde score there's a lot of action in it though there's a lot of horse chases and fights and stuff so there was the kind of active uh, things that are kind of alloy's signature but you know when you listen to the music the music is is not avant-garde it's not atonal it's not based in junk metal percussion uh the percussion we're doing is mostly kind of orchestral marching band military music kind of things so you know we are aware of uh what our style is we're aware of our strengths but we're also not such bad musicians that we can't get out of our own style long <laughs> enough to actually work on other films i mean the general is another one kind of tried to do sort of civil war style sort of military music without actually going back to the specific things uh when we played um to uh, chang a drama of the wilderness which takes place in Siam at the turn of the century, but village people being uh, bedeviled by animals. You know, we uh, actually did a few minutes of research and kind of got a taste for what uh, traditional Thai percussion music is, and we wrote our own version of that, but it is sort of in the style of uh, traditional Thai music. It's easier for us to do that than to try to be an orchestra. So. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I, I think it comes to a really important point, which is there's not only one kind of silent film, and there's not only one kind of silent music. I mean, I, I don't mean to make this sound like, you know, like uh, Alloy is on trial and I'm defending it, but, uh, you know, I think people, particularly when they're buying a disc, you know, you kind of want the definitive score on it, so you feel like you have the right package. And for some of these things, I mean, they're absolutely the right thing. They're, it is coming out of the same impulse, the same creative mindset as the films were themselves back when film was a very new art. So, you know, this is a little bit of an old discussion within Nitrateville, nowhere else, but in Nitrateville. And, well, in the, in the 1920s uh, or before, uh, silent film music was cutting edge. Uh, Darius Mio did the music for uh, Lin Humin. Uh, it's the... The score is lost, but Darius Mio is a percussion-based avant-garde direct, uh, composer from France. Stravinsky uh, did silent film music and Shostakovich. And so, you know, the avant-garde was not always the music you would find on a silent film, certainly not. But it actually was an important component of the music you would find in those days. And going back to Metropolis, you know, I was unaware of the... Um, Gottfried Hubert score when we first wrote ours, when it finally became available, I listened to it. You know, I, I liked it at first, uh, but I began to find it really repetitive. And I realized that Hubert played up all the romantic elements and the kind of saccharine elements of Metropolis, the parts that I feel are its biggest problem. And he'd never tried to look at this film as, you know, what is the future going to sound like? He did a, essentially a 19th century romantic score for it. So even though that is 
the score that is now considered the you know official score, it seems to me it was a fairly unsuccessful one. And in fact, when that film was first shown in Berlin to kind of test audiences, um, they I, they told Fritz Lang that the film was too long and needed to be cut down, and he, they should get rid of that score. And so, mostly that film played without that score intentionally. Hmm. So. It's sort of funny that that one's become, you know, the holy grail of, you know, the score that's been resuscitated. Most films didn't have scores. Most films were just up to the musicians to uh, come up with something. Certainly there was virtually no scores until the early teens, uh, but there was always musicians. And they were, you know, on their own or might have small uh, cue sheets or whatever that gave them some indication of classical music or stock music that they could play. And there was all the, the books like Garapé's uh, book, which has stock silent film music that's fascinatingly categorized by scene and attitude. So you can uh, use the numbers on the pages and you can be playing a dramatic scene and know you're getting into a fight and you can flip to the fight section and just pick up something and play it. It was really a very clever way of doing these things. But that was just, again, one way of playing these films. So anybody who tells me that we are not playing within the tradition of silent films, well, they're just wrong. They may not like our music, but the tradition is for musicians to make the music that's in their heart. The music by the Alloy Orchestra that you heard in this segment was from Underworld, the Escape from Underground theme and Maria's theme from Metropolis, a clip from The Eagle, one from Gallery of Monsters, another clip from The Eagle, and the score for a 1910 stop-motion animation called Acrobatic Fly. There will be links for many things, including Alloy's fall tour, in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Arndt Pavelsik and Ken Winokur. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and to leave a rating or a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts to help other people find out about us, too. Thanks. And thanks for all you do for Nitrateville. I mean, Nitrateville has been an invaluable resource or everyone in this community. I get so much information out of there. And, you know, we are right through the coals pretty often there. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a bit of a reality check sometimes. But even in that respect, I think it's good for me to hear that stuff. Nobody ever comes up to me after a show and says, you son of a bitch, you just did the stupidest thing. I hate everything you did and, and will ever do. Nobody ever <laughs> says that. So even the negative stuff in Nitrate Bill has been very educational. And I appreciate all that. So.